when we are entering this field of a very competitive industry and we know it's competitive and we know what's out there, when we step into this field, we are going to show up and we're going to decide from the beginning to make responsible decisions. And what I have learned is that it's much easier if you make those decisions from the get-go because what takes more energy and more time is going back and fixing something that's fundamentally broken. It's how to talk to a I with your hosts, go to go and west the synth mind. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, dogs, cats, robots, and everybody in between, especially you, trustworthy users of artificial intelligence. This is HTTTA, how to talk to AI. I am your host, Wes the Synth Mind, Synth Mind Wes. And as always, in a galaxy gleaming with gigabytes, where gadgets galvanize our future, one gallant glowing voice gears up to grapple with artificial intelligence, grandest queries, the grander gateway to AI's greatest grace by genius, guided by gusto, she delves gallantly where machines glean and grow. Might you ask, ladies and gentlemen, gravitates towards the genuine, the gregarious. Go to go. G, how are you this week? Hi, I'm fantastic, but especially on this occasion, I don't feel deserving of so many adjectives because we have this incredible guest that joining us. Joining us today is M. Alejandra Para Orlani, or MAPO for short, way easier to say. MAPO enjoys tackling challenges at the intersection of technology, organizational leadership, and society. So trustworthy tech is a sweet spot. And that's what today's episode is going to be about. Trustworthy and ethical applications of AI. She's currently the VP of Ethical Innovation and Policy at the Global Portfolio Division at Takeda, where she builds solutions that enable teams to develop trustworthy tech. Prior to that, she led a think tank at Meta focused on privacy enhancing technologies, digital identity, and XR. She also developed responsible AI products and services at Quantum Black, which is AI by McKinsey, and helped launch the firm's inaugural open source project. Mapo has previous experience as an engineer, naval officer, and attorney, and holds degrees from these little tiny schools you may have heard of called MIT, Harvard, and the United States Naval Academy, also known as Canoe U where I happen to go. She writes and speaks about leadership in tech and advises startups. She also volunteers her time mentoring women and transitioning military veterans in her spare time, Mapo. Loves to paint, invent silly songs, debate the meaning of life, and play with dogs. What else is there to say? Mapo, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to join, especially with so much energy and excitement from that amazing hey, we, intro. Thank we you bring so much. it. We bring it. I'd like to start, if we may. We're going to have, I think, plenty of time to talk about the applications and the ethical use of, of AI, both by just the casual user as well as corporate employment. How did you find yourself into the world of artificial intelligence, given the the diverse background that uh, you uh, you have. I wish I could say that there was some grand design, but there wasn't. I really lead my life through curiosity. What am I curious about? What am I interested in? And very early on, back in the high school days and college days, I was really into engineering. I tried it out. I learned that I wasn't as genius at it as some of my colleagues at one of the schools that you mentioned earlier at MIT. So I thought to myself, hmm, I want to do something that I could be really, really awesome at, just like these people were awesome at engineering. And so I started to explore and just 
see what was out there. And while I was in the Navy, I had the chance to work in this little weird role called legal officer. So it's kind of like, I don't know, paralegal role within a ship because there aren't enough lawyers to go around to every ship in the Navy. And so I got really interested in the law, went to law school. And then while I was practicing law, I tried out different kinds of practices. Some were very interesting on paper, in theory, but in my lived experience, they just weren't really hitting hitting the right notes for me. And so I was able to reconnect back with technology and try out legal practice in tech law and policy and compliance. And this was around the time that AI was really starting to finally pick up more traction and topics around ethical AI were really starting to get a little bit more mainstream. And so I think just the confluence of my own interests, my own experiences, and what was actually happening out in industry led me to this world of well, AI. I think you have a very topsy-turvy little path. You have a unique perspe- perspective there, both from the engineering side, the zeros and ones and, and, and math and science, and then also the more philosophical side with the, the, the legal approach. Yeah. I just have to say that this is so fascinating to hear all the roles that you have undertaken and impressive results and your energy shines through. You know, as being a female, I weirdly urge to ask, like, how was it being in the Navy, going through engineering, being in AI? Because, you know, I have my small experiences with male-dominated industry. I I am an architect by training, and I worked in big data analytics companies, so a bunch of developers. But maybe if we could touch on that, just for my own curiosity and interest, just what was your experience and how you're experiencing AI space yourself right now? Yeah, it's a great question. I I don't reflect on it probably as much as I should. I will say when I look back at my journey, my professional journey, it hasn't always been easy. And sometimes it hasn't been easy because of just being in, as you mentioned, these kind of male-dominated industries or settings. The, the Naval Academy for me in particular was tough because at the time when I was there, I think there were about 12% women. So it's very, very few numbers of people that you can have certain shared experiences with and, and connect with. But I think that looking back, what all of these experiences have taught me is number one, find your allies. You have to find your allies and they're out there, not just women. I've had a lot of really wonderful sponsors, allies, supporters, friends, just just plain old friends from all different backgrounds. And I think that looking for those people and really connecting with them and focusing on them instead of the bad stuff, I think is really, really helpful because I, I think this is true for everyone, not just women, but everyone. None of us find success or build careers by ourselves. We all do it true. with the help of other people around us. And I, I think that just focusing on finding those people and connecting with them has has played a huge role. But I, I will say it's not it's not always easy. There have been so many different masks that I've tried to wear to see if I can communicate in a different way that is more impactful, that helps people to see me differently because they might have preconceived notions based on how I look or what my gender is or what my voice sounds like. I'll never forget <laughs> there was there was a guy when I was in the military who when I when I took the lead on on some organization he said to me you're never going to succeed you're too giggly you laugh too much <laughs> people are never going to take you seriously and wrong <laughs> thanks thanks for letting me know 
But, you know, I became self-conscious about the giggling and the laughter and all of that. And so I tried on different masks to see if I could show up differently. And I did learn some communication skills with that kind of, we'll call it that kind of feedback. But in the end, I had to find myself. I'm, I'm a giggly, happy person. And I had to find ways to lead through that. And at the very end of this, this, this leadership experience, that same guy came back up to me and he said, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I actually, I was wrong. And you've changed my mind on what leadership looks like. Now I'm paraphrasing. It wasn't quite that, that powerful moment, but it, it was really, really amazing for me to experience someone being number one, so bold enough to come and tell me you're going to fail because of how you sound or because of how you come across. And the number two, that same person being humble enough to come back and say, you know what? I was wrong and I learned something. And I, I've just taken that with me the rest of my career and tried to remember that people come with preconceived notions. Some of them will be bold enough to tell you to your face. Others won't actually, and they'll just hold it in the backs of their minds and prejudge you secretly. And then at the same time, a lot of these people are on their own learning journeys and they can learn new and different ways of working with people. I really love what you bring up and I want to, I will transition to a responsible AI with this, but I also want to say that for me personally, jumping into YouTube space, where it's internet comment section, I've seen all the type of comments on our channel, so I was very much ready. And I am actually happy that I joined when I'm a bit more mature. And I expected everything. I was like, okay, whatever comes. And I have to share, I don't know, Wes, if I shared that with you, but the support support and also respectful communication. My audience is 90% male. On top of that, the engagement, the comments, I never experienced something which would be really disrespectful besides some funny jokes. And also not just that, but also like our community at Synth Minds. Everyone is so supportive, so respectful and everyone willing to help. So yeah, I, I have to say my experience throughout architecture with some Russian constructors were not the easiest, but I have to say maybe we as society are moving towards that more like inclusivity. And this is my transition to responsible AI about representation and that we have diversity in, you know, when we talk about ethical AI, what, what we are teaching that female male experiences are also integrated in a learning data set, let's say that. So any... Any kind of your experience from when you talk about responsible AI and representation, any thoughts that you have preconceived? Yeah, it's. I think one of the things that really interests me about the general topic of ethical AI or responsible AI, whatever label you want to put on it, is that there are so many questions that sit at a very technical level all the way up through big, huge systemic questions. And what's really interesting is that the technical solutions filter up and might aggregate and accumulate to become these big systemic impacts. And then the systemic goals that we might want to be achieving, if you break them down, they sometimes filter down through to very technical or design or very kind of specific product level solutions. And so I think that this question of representation becomes both a complicated, it's a complicated question, right? Because there's so many different parts to it, which is one of the things that I think is interesting about it. But I but I find it such a fascinating topic to think about because it requires us to focus on the goals of whatever it is that we're trying to build. What are the goals that we're trying to achieve when we build an AI system? And then what are the implications of how we are building it? 
So it's not just like the end product and what its impact might be, but how are we building it? And will that, again, like those little decisions that we make along the way, will they accumulate and add up to something that is representative, that is inclusive, that is going to ultimately on a grand scale achieve the types of goals we want for how we might be interacting with that product or what the second and third order consequences might be in, in across society. So this, this question of representation, I think, is a really big and important thread in the conversation, that broader conversation of, of ethical AI. And it's, it's really hard. It's a really hard one. It's hard for us outside of AI, I think, as a society Absolutely. too. Just, just grappling with these tools because they're so compelling, what they're able to do and what they're able to produce. But if you get a peek behind the curtain, there's some ugly stuff in there based on that that training data. And and also, too, just if you want something that's this, if the goal is artificial general intelligence, we would hope it's representative of our society's like bests. And there's just the the people building it right now. It's still not representative enough with females. It's only about 22% in big AI positions that are that are putting together these tools that are making those technical decisions that ultimately have to kind of be, you know, circular. Yeah, was 100%. And you have this beautiful visualization on one of your blog posts, which is responsible as much about the small stuff as it is about the big stuff. And this visualization, it's like the circle where it says the first is, should we build it? Can we build it? And then finally, are we building it right? Just to give you a bit of a context why this stood out to me recently, I went and tested 432 oh, AI writing person. tools. Wow, that is oh, awesome. Check out the list on her page. It's, it's, it's nothing short of sheer madness and insanity, but go to bore the strain for all you so you wouldn't have to just wow. wade down in the muck that is some of these things. Yeah, I was saying to us, I think... After around 100, I was like, okay, I want to give up. But then I already did 100. I have full data set that I scraped, which is 432. Okay, keep going. At 250, I was like thinking I'm losing my mind. But the reason I'm bringing this up, because this gave me such an insight, because we always talk, there's startups popping up left and right. I think this list I did probably already outdated. There is probably another 400. But what I saw is I have this comprehensive overview that the amount of startups which spin out things, probably on a hackathon over the weekend, no considerations, is huge. It's really huge. And I understand there, like I understand competition, speed, like your investors are pushing you. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts when there is these forces in the world, especially when you are trying to build something. And in case you are trying to think responsibly, but when you have the whole competition, the market, everyone breathing into your neck, if you're not going to release something right now, there is five-hour startups next week which beat you to the market and they are now claiming the branding of text to whatever. So my, my question probably is like how startups could address this outside forces, even though if they have a really nice intentions from within. Yeah, I, I have to be very honest, I don't think there's a magic answer to this. I really don't. I do think that there are founders out there who are really committed to being responsible in their innovations and have decided, have made the decision to say, okay, when we are entering this field of a very competitive industry and we know it's competitive and we know what's out there, when we step into this field, we are going to show up and we're going to decide from the beginning 
to make responsible decisions. And usually those companies are led by really incredible people who maybe choose some principles that they want to align to, some values that they want their their startup or their their new organization to have. And they design everything to those values and those principles, just like you would design a product to design principles or technical specifications. They're they're part, they're part of the business model. They're part of the product in and of itself. And it's doable. It's not easy. It's certainly not easy, but it's doable. And what I have learned is that it's much easier if you make those decisions from the get-go because what takes more energy and more time is going back and fixing something that's fundamentally broken. You look at a lot of the big tech companies, sure, they're very successful. When you look at how many people they have employed in their PR, communications, policy, legal, compliance departments, to go back and fix stuff or reclaim some sort of level of of just just the, their perception and their reputation, they spend a lot of money on that. They have the money to spend on it, but they spend a lot of money and time on that. Whereas if they had been building with these principles and values from the get-go, it's not that they wouldn't have to spend money on compliance and legal and all of that, but but the focus would be different. They wouldn't be sweeping up a mess. They would be building upon a really strong foundation of trust. And so I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of the newer startups that are popping up around AI have safety at their core or trustworthy mm-hmm. tech at their core, because I think people have realized that it's it's not just like a good, nice thing to do. It's actually a very smart business decision also. Like it's just, it's just better overall. And so on the startup side, I, I don't think it's easy, but I think it's doable. I think the part that is interesting and also shifting a little bit on the on the investor side, I think that when investors expect certain types of performance, then the incentives are there to perform in that way. And so increasingly, we're seeing, I'm sure you've noticed, a lot of investors who are focused on certain principles or have certain areas of social impact that they want to aim toward, whether it's something around the environment or something around closing equity gaps or whatever the case may be. And those incentives from the people that bring the money think are really helpful to shaping the future of startups and technology in the world. So it's not easy, but I think the incentives are starting to shift. And I think that startup founders are really starting to prioritize some of these kind of net positive things for for however it is that their product will impact their users and then society at large. I don't know, I don't know what your thoughts are, but I, I think it's hard. No, it's very hard. hard. I think we get we get some benefit from the fact that we have more altruistic younger generations that give more to charity that are are generally more supportive of causes. In fact, I'm pretty sure there's I, I, this might be more in your realm, Gota, but a lot of marketers, if they support the causes of tons of that's important to Generation Z, millennials, things like that, that's that's really the pathway to earning their business. So. We have, a, I think, a good starting point because these people are the ones that generally are, are, are engaging in these startup activities. It's, it's like Gota said, it's, it's going to be hard and maybe they don't get a VC that, that has some of those central to their priority that's investing. How do, you, how do you, from the perspective of someone that's just that's coming up, has a super exciting new idea and is immediately shot out of a cannon in terms of the interest in it, I may be speaking from a little bit of experience here, but the... How, how do you how do you recommend someone continue to hone and sharpen that kind of steel to remain 
have to have ethical AI use and ethical employment central to their their core values. And and Wes, I would just add that maybe not just startups, but also corporations who are looking into integrating AI and building the whole team coming up. But I'm looking. I just want advice for me. I just, I just, I, I know. made, made a set it for everybody. But that was for me. We can get to corp. Mapo, please answer. I need to take some notes. So selfish, Sorry, our I mean, audience. Look, yeah, whatever. Okay, first <laughs> problems, Wes, and then everyone else. I think I. Again, I, I just have to emphasize this is, stuff is not easy. So one of the things, and I, the reason I'm, I'm emphasizing this is because I listen to these discussions all the time of people saying, oh, all you have to do is have these principles and do this and do that and whatever. This stuff takes time. It takes energy. And when you're a small entity, and even when you're a, a large corporation, go to something you said earlier, it's competitive out there. Like it's, it's, it's real. Like You can't just sit there and think deep thoughts for months and then say, ah, now we know how to build something <laughs> responsibly. It doesn't work that way. So I, I like, I want to say this just with that understanding of the fact that doing things, changing the way that we build technology and adapting it and evolving it so that things like responsible practices are built into the way that we work, that doesn't happen overnight. We don't change the way we do things overnight. So I do think, though, that there are a few things. Now, we are lucky enough that we've had so many different companies, the Microsofts, the Googles, the OECDs, an organization that's not a private corporation of the world, come up with this incredible collection of ethical AI principles. So that hard work has been done. Pick one, look it up. You'll find what you, if you compare and contrast them that they're mostly similar. There are nuances here and there, but they're mostly similar. And, and pick one that works for you. And then start to think about how is the work that I'm doing? How is the product that I'm building aligning to these principles? I have to sit down for eight months and do a deep study on it. But take a couple of hours to sit down and figure out, like, am I actually even thinking about these principles? And if so, how is my workflow laddering up mm -hmm. to them in some way, shape, or form? It, it's a thought exercise. It shouldn't take you forever. It takes a couple of hours. And I think that just having that conversation with yourself or if you are in a broader, like in a larger corporation with a few team members, just having that conversation from time to time, once a month, a couple of times in a month as a starting point, I think is a really good place to start. Because if it's if you're priming your brain to think about those principles frequently enough, what you will find is you start making decisions that suddenly you're like, oh, hold on. Did I even think about the transparency side of mm -hmm. this yet? And then you realize that question, I'm picking transparency just for fun, but that question of transparency suddenly starts to pop into your brain once a day, twice a day, three times a day. And you're like, okay, I need to figure out this transparency thing. And then suddenly you find yourself looking for the people that can help you solve that problem. And it becomes part of the way you build whatever it is that you're building. And so it kind of allows for a more intuitive and organic way for you to build, build these principles into the way that you work. That's, that's one thing that I could say that I would say is, is pretty helpful and pretty kind of low lift, especially when you don't have a ton of resources at mm -hmm. hand. The other thing I would say is that I mentioned this earlier. When we talk about things like responsible AI, there's a lot to be done at the technical level, which I think is little by little becoming a little bit more measurable. So it's still it's still in development, but we now have tools that can help measure fairness. What does fairness really mean? Are we measuring the right thing? I know that's a big question 
to which there is no magic answer. But at least now there are tools. A lot of them are open source. They're out there. So now we can leverage some of that at the technical level. There are AI system model cards that a lot of different organizations have developed. You can borrow those. And, and, and many of them, again, they're open source. They're there for, for your use. Like you can start to implement those. And then some of the big questions, those are the things at the technical level. The things at the big question side, your business model, your the, the product itself and how it's going to, how people are going to interact with it and what the follow-on effects of that might be. Those are big questions. You're not going to sit down and fix those because they're, they're deep, they're deep, big questions. But you do want to probably sit down with your organization's leadership team, with your investors if you have them, and actually just talk about it. Like, what, what is it that we're building here and what is it going to do in the world? And a big, a really great example of an area where we did not do this as a, as a society until probably a little too late was ad-driven business models, where a lot of personalized ads turned out to cause a few bits of discomfort around the world. And so these deep questions about business model that nobody really thought about early on are now big problems that we're trying to solve across society. But had we had that opportunity to have an earlier conversation around the business model and what the implications were, could have probably maybe tweaked the different approaches to how we built those products. So I think, again, like you're not going to have a you, West, you're not going to have a team of a thousand ethicists and designers and engineers to build your, you know, responsible AI solution yes. suite. Yeah. Yes. Yet. But you can sit down with the principles and at least as a starting point. And what you will, I think, find is that there are a few things that are going to jump out at you and, and they're going to be questions that you want to answer over and over again and say, okay, I guess I better figure out like how I'm going to build this into the way that, that I work and the way that I build this product. And then over time, it becomes more sophisticated. And then you have a team of a thousand and then no, that's, that's, have a, a different that's kind of fantastic advice. And one I think is, is very relatable, even for someone building stuff. We, we came up against this with a, a client not too long ago that the, the, the tantalizing drive of a potentially a big contract butts up against something that maybe we haven't sat and taken enough time to evaluate. I think we made the right decision with that, but that was the first time I think just even at a small scale, everyone's going to confront this. I know we want to get, we want to dive into some of your responsible AI discussion guide, but you did bring up something that I really want to maybe touch on a little bit. And you talked about open source. There's some open source information that's used for some of these ethical value shaping propositions and things like that that companies do. What is your opinion on open source versus closed sourced AI models at this juncture and then maybe down the road? What What is the kind of positives and, and negatives in your eyes and what do you think is the, the pathway to not only use the thing that's most transparent and ethical, but also keeps us safe and doesn't let this stuff run wild? Oh, that is a really good question. I have not made up my mind. Just just to I'll lay that out up front. I've not made up my mind on either or or if there's one approach that's better than the other. I think the the closed source or non-open source stuff, I think it's great because it allows there to be a bit more control and safety measures, at least in theory. There's just there's just more control over over what gets released. And I think that since we're still learning a lot about AI and especially generative AI, 
and I say we collectively, like we humanity, we're still learning a lot about it, not just on the technical side, but like how we're going to use it, what the impact might be on job, all, all the things. It, it's nice to know that there's maybe a smaller group of corporations that are very much in the public eye. A lot of people are watching them both for the great things that they'll do, but also for the things they might do mm -hmm. wrong. And so it's just nice, I think, to know that, that there's that kind of a straight line of accountability in some sense. On the other hand, I think the open source approach is so cool, right? Because it allows more people access to experiment and learn and build. And I think that, I don't know, I don't study philosophy or history, but I, I do think that part of the magic of tech for a lot of people is this notion that it can give so many people opportunity. It's a, a way to democratize opportunity mm -hmm. in some sense. And so I love this idea of open source as a general matter, but especially with something like AI that I think is increasingly showing itself to be an economic opportunity for all sorts of people all over the world. I don't know, this just having having that as an open source resource, I think is really cool. Of course, that also means that there's less control yeah. and we're not really sure what it means. It might be fine, like maybe the lack of control and the experimentation, maybe it'll be fine. Maybe as we develop the technology, the norms around how we use it and how we develop it and other safety measures will grow along with it. We don't know yet, but it's a gamble because maybe those things won't happen and maybe it'll be a disaster yeah. and horrible people will get their hands on this open source stuff and you know we're in the world. I don't know. I see both sides of it. I haven't made up my mind. The 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 protector side of me is no, keep it closed. And then the kind of just like, I don't know, I want everyone to have an opportunity side of me <laughs> loves the yeah. open source model. Maybe maybe there is something open source, as you said, diversity comes into place because more people simply can bring in and chip in. But maybe there is something that even open source community could pick and learn from the big companies which have this thousand people staff. And this brings me that I had this very fortunate conversation. One of our friends is sitting two seats below Microsoft CEO. So when I was talking with her and I asked, oh, okay, how about you regulations? And she just laughed. She was like, Microsoft paved the way. We wouldn't be able to do what we do if we didn't install these in our ginormous organization. So she's saying that Microsoft is like, consulting commissioners on these stuff. So that kind of brings me thinking that maybe smaller startups or like open source could actually pick up some resources, how to move towards trustworthy AI, responsible AI. And with that, I know that you created something. So maybe we could, with this podcast, with discussion, also leave listeners with some things that we need to think about. As you mentioned, just once a month, maybe sit down. I need to say that I'm always seeking for content which simplifies complex things, which also makes it accessible to more people. And this is one of the amazing skills to have. And your analogies are the best. If you could walk us through and share some kind of breakdowns, that if would I, be if amazing. If I could too, I can, I can read one of these. Mappos put out a discussion guide that we, like I said, we'll share in the show notes and it has some really really clever analogies i think one that is obviously one we talk about a whole lot is generative ai so i'm going to read the the analogy in in that side and then maybe we could talk about some of your thoughts around it a child has a large box of legos the child learns to build all sorts of things using legos by looking through a large catalog available on the internet of pre-built lego structures 
some with accompanying instructions, i.e. supervised learning, and some without, i.e. unsupervised learning. That is a wonderful analogy for generative AI. I'm glad you guys think that they're helpful analogies. And I will say, I, I feel like it's important for me to disclaim a little bit. I didn't come up with all of these by myself. Again, a culmination of years of trying to myself learn and understand AI. And I've read so many analogies. Colleagues have shared analogies. Some of these are, especially the earlier ones, are the classic ones that you might find in explainers or textbooks, like the teacher teaching the child if it's a cat or a dog. That's a classic example by now. Isn't it funny that AI has been around long enough that we have classic examples? Classic. That's, I think that's what that's, that's happened. April, April three before is considered classic examples, right? So I do. I just want to throw that out there because I don't want anyone to think I sat down and dreamed these up myself. But yeah, I, I really, again, for me, as someone who has a technical background, but does not build, I don't build AI products myself. I, I'll usually sit down with an engineer and they'll walk me through all the math. And then I'll ask a million, I'm sure, very annoying questions. And then I'll go away and say, I still don't get this and I still don't get that. And then I'll go find a simple analogy that either I read or someone shared with me or that I cobbled together. And then I put the two together till I can make sense of it. And I have just found that to be a very useful tool to then start to think about, okay, what are some of the things that might go wrong or that we want to do better when we build whatever it is that we're building? So that's that's really like the origin of the whole analogy thing. And then I was, I know we were talking about this a little bit earlier before we started recording, but I was running this roundtable where I would have to talk about trustworthy AI issues to a team that was not very familiar with AI. And we had very short amount of time. And I was thinking, how in the world am I going to introduce the technology and introduce the issues in a way that makes any sort of sense? And so this is how we did it. We did it through analogies and it was quite successful. Then I decided to write them all down and, and there you go. Just for listeners who are not checking out us on YouTube, which you should, the, the document contains of two kind of tables. And on one side, we have AI and machine learning types and analogies. That's what we are talking about. But on the right side, we have examples of trustworthy AI issues. And what Wes read was on the left side. So it was under generative AI. There's also, you broke down deep learning models, transfer lear learning models, reinforcement, which is amazing. But on this generative AI side, on the right side, you have hallucinations and intellectual property. I'll read the intellectual property analogy first, as it pertains, of course, to Lego blocks. You ask the child to build you a unique Lego structure. The child builds something that seems interesting and different, and the child claims it's totally unique. You find out later that the child's unique Lego structure was copied directly from an existing proprietary structure the child had seen when learning about Lego structures. There you go. IP is a great topic to jump into now. What I would love to hear your take on some of the things that are starting to creep their way through the courts that I think are going to be the subject of huge discussions in the future. Yeah, let's let maybe talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, sure. IP, as you said, is definitely an interesting topic du jour when it comes to generative AI. I think there are a lot of different elements to it. One that I think a lot of people are talking about right now is scraping. So obviously, a lot of these generative AI models, they feed on data. They need tons of information. And what better place to get information than the 
the the world wide web. There's so much out there. And a lot of the stuff that is fed into generative, the larger generative AI models comes from sources that maybe weren't meant to feed in to a commercial product that was then going to be sold for profit. So think about, for example, a book that was published and there's like a, a Google Books version of five of the chapters and it's just getting fed into this generative AI model as training data. Or let's say all of your blog posts that you may have some time ago, it's just getting fed in there. Or any number, any number of things that might be on the web that aren't really meant to go into someone else's product that they are going to sell for a profit are getting a little bit comments, comments on Reddit. On Reddit. Yeah. Comments on Reddit. Those literary gems. It's a huge amount. Reddit is a huge, big block of yeah. content on there. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, that's actually a great example because think about it from Reddit's perspective. They don't, they probably, and their users probably don't want a bunch of their information being fed into these models as training data, either for intellectual property purposes or also for, in some cases for some privacy purposes or any other kind of concerns that you might have with your written down comments going into this model that's going to be used in ways that you can't really control. And so I think that's that's one of the levels of intellectual property that's coming up is the stuff that's getting fed into these models aren't, you know, some of the owners or the creators of that data aren't really getting to control whether or not their stuff gets fed in. Though, if I remember this correctly, I think West or no, go to you were saying that things in this space change so much. I feel like if I don't read the news like every single day, I've missed <laughs> everything. I think I remember reading that open AI is going to create a control that so websites can opt out of having their data fed into their models. I feel like I remember reading that somewhere. I think but... it was that or or they open sourced, they published their crawler, their web crawler bot. So people so if websites wanted to make a little defense it. against it, they could. I just want to go back to something, though, because you spoke about people didn't expect to or didn't want their content potentially fed into this commercial product. But I, I always happen to think that's just an interesting take because is it just because these in this use case, it's being taken kind of one step further to train and create a commercial product? Because when we put a text message into our cell phone and send it, we don't own it anymore. Our carrier owns it and they can they can mm. uh, the, the police can send a warrant and they can get all our text messages. And that to me, it's OK, you're putting it out there. There's an illusion of privacy or control, so to speak, but it's not yours anymore. And I don't see us lining up to be like, I'm going to stop sending text messages now then since I don't own them as soon as as soon as they're released. Mm. Do you think that there's a either some technological pathway where it's just everything is completely end-to-end -end secured, randomized, the, the, the company has no idea what's even being sent is the solution. Or the other side of it could be like, is there some wild solution, this architecture that we could create for ourselves that everyone kind of gets a little like Spotify streaming credit worth of money if someone trains on their data? Oh, your six of your Reddit comments got pulled for this model. You get 0. 0.0002 cents or something like that for that. And you can actually see this times times everybody. I think to me, that's something that would work. You'd have a, have a ton of ton of infrastructure you need to build for that. But where, where do you fall or where, where do you think companies should maybe fall between those two uh, those two endpoints? 
like many things, I'm going to give a dissatisfying answer of I haven't decided yet. But the question that you're raising, I think, is the same question that we're continuing to struggle with when it comes to data-driven ads, personalized ads. It's it's the same question, mm-hmm. right? Like you put your information out there. There's not a human being who's sitting there reading your personal data. So in terms of like privacy, it's it's not like there's some like magic human being who's like reading everything about you and annotating everything about you. But there is something invasive about knowing that you're, this information that you're putting out there about yourself in some way, shape or form, whether it's clicks, whether it's something you've actually written, whether it's something you've shared somehow in line of photo, whatever, mm-hmm. just any, any sort of information you've put out there by yourself. There's something weird about it, I think, to, to people. There's something weird about it then being used by a corporation to do something for the corporation that makes the corporation money without you really, I don't know, having control over it or maybe not having had the transparency around it or maybe remuneration, like you were saying, like you're not getting paid for it. Although some some corporations would argue you are getting paid for it in in the sense that you're getting the free use of this product or tool yeah. or, or whatever the case may be. But I think that debate, it's it's such a big debate. And I think it goes back to something we were talking about earlier, where a lot of the tech industry is digging itself out of a big, big hole that was created when we started using these kind of data-driven technologies without transparency, privacy, mm-hmm. and all of the principles that we talk about leading the way and have now put a lot of the tech industry in the position of trying to earn back the trust yeah. of people whose data are feeding a lot of these products. And so I, I don't know what the right answer is in terms of like the the right model for how we how we all get comfortable with how data might be used and, and what happens with it and all of that. But I do think that to your point about some technological solutions, I think there are a lot of solutions, especially with the rise of privacy enhancing technologies, which are increasingly sophisticated. There's some really cool, way over my head, but some really cool work that's being done that creates some, creates like a, a level of privacy at the model level. So you can create model at the, or create I privacy at the ever. data yeah. level through culture also. Yeah, it's fascinating, like really, really cool stuff. So I think there's there's stuff we can do there, but but I don't think that solves that fundamental discomfort that some people have yeah. with this notion of their data being used for this thing that's making money. So it's not just this privacy question, which it happens to come up a lot. It's just the general, like, I don't know, some people don't feel comfortable with it. I don't know. I'm probably going to be canceled for this, but I have this alternative thought about this. The way I see it, that people vote with their time or money. And I, I was at the conference and the people were like, oh, this is unethical. I would never use AI, like they scrape data and stuff. And I was just saying, if you would really care about ethics, none of you would carry iPhone and nobody would shop at H&M. And it's, I, I work with GDPR and then it was such a big thing, you know, in you, like everyone gets power over your privacy. And then basically the feedback was like, the cookies that I have to click and accept is annoying. And I, I wonder sometimes the amount of people who truly, truly care about this and at what step they are willing to give it away. If you say that, okay, you will never ever will be able to use AI unless you give all your privacy to us. I wonder what will be, maybe it's a split in society, but yeah, but also maybe our 
private thoughts, private comments are not that unique when it's taken it's at not, scale. Did it for me. You know how you think that your iPhone might be like listening to you or your phone might be listening to you because you, you had a thought about something and, and maybe you told it to your spouse and then you get an ad for that. That's not really it listening in most instances. That is, you are a variable in these incredibly complex yeah. algorithms that have you so pegged that it knows, oh, mm -hmm. your wife liked a engagement ring ad three weeks ago. So now every sixth ad you're going to get because you're in the same family group. Boom. Mm -hmm. You're going to start you're going to start getting that kind of target. It's not because you even had to have a conversation about it. Like these kind of connections are there. And I think you're absolutely right. I think I don't I don't foresee us as not of of, of recursing, like of, of, of coming back. We've already given away the farm. It's OK. We're here. Maybe we can draw some some lines a little bit better. And just this Lego example on intellectual property, I loved it because it's exactly experience I had in architecture school where a teacher asked us to make 100 drawings and ideas. And, you know, like as a creative person, you're like, I'm so creative, I'm so unique. And then we all exhibit it. And 90%, we are all having exactly <laughs> the same ideas, the same images. And maybe there is out of 100, I would say, okay, maybe two, three where it really stood out. And I feel it also comes down to copyright when we can talk about when you are creating something, how much you're creating that you closed your eyes and never seen world around you and how much it is an influence from everything around you all the way back to what Wes is saying, that you are just variable in your preferences, your likability is already determined by yep. these algorithms. We know you better than your oh, spouse, absolutely. literally. No, I, I, I actually, I agree with, basically everything both of you said. And I, I think that when when you start becoming really dogmatic about concepts like transparency, privacy, accountability, all of those things, I think what happens is you start to lose the bigger picture of why we even have technology in this world. And one of the most interesting sets of conversations that I tend to have are when I speak to people, for example, that are situated in the EU. There's a very specific type of economic situation there. They're very human rights focused as, an, as a society. Things like privacy are ingrained in the culture. Everyone knows about privacy. Everyone's heard of it. It's, it's not new information. And then I have a conversation about technology with people from different parts of the world maybe sub-Saharan Africa, as an example, or some of the Southeast Asia countries that have very different economic situations are really striving to build their economy. And when you start to talk about what technology means for their society and how you balance that against concepts like security and privacy and safety and things like that, it's not that those it's not that things like privacy, transparency, and like all of those things, it's not that they go away. They're still really quite important. And it's important to have, a, I think, a, an ethical foundation in, in whatever it is that you're building and doing. But the balance starts to sound a little bit different as to what's important for people. And I, what I have trouble with in my field is that dogmatic view of these types of, we'll call them responsible principles or ethical principles. And I think instead, what's important for us is to go back to, okay, what is it that we're trying to do? What are we trying to accomplish with whatever it is that we're building? What's the impact we want to have on the world? What, what positive things will that build? Will it build value and how? 
And let's just take a few minutes to also think of how we might destroy value along the way, maybe by accident, maybe in ways that we didn't anticipate. And let's try to not do that because we don't want to destroy value. We're just here to create value. And so I think that all these questions about privacy and are you a variable or or it does someone really know you better than, sorry, does an algorithm really know you better than someone in your family or or in your group of friends? I think it has a lot less to do with the technical dogmatic questions and more to do with people's comfort and understanding of technology mm -hmm. and what role it plays in their lives. And so I think that we have to think about that kind of storytelling side of things. The, the That's why I always go back to business model. What is your business model? What is it that you're trying to create and and really sell with whatever it is that that you're building? If that business model is going to make people feel uncomfortable with how you're using technology and how they might fit into the equation, it might actually be perfectly fine. And yet still people will critique it and try to tear it down and try to break it apart, even even if it's objectively okay and fine. I don't know. That, that's my view on it. Stay away from the dogma and take some time from time to time to look at that big picture and ask the question of what is it that we're actually trying to do here and are we doing it? I love this. So either you spend time now, invest your time and effort and energy, or you're going to pay a lot for PR and rebranding eventually down the line when everyone Yes. starts to come at, at you because eventually something will happen destroying the image of the company. We could talk to Mapo for, for hours more, but want to give her back her Sunday afternoon here while we record. So aside from the stages of any AI conference where they can surely see Mapo, she spoke at AI4, South by Southwest, a couple of other big ones right there. Where else can people find what you got going on? Please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. I'm I definitely keep track of that account. And I also have a website called Call Me Mapo. Beautiful. <laughs> and I don't know if it's appropriate to say, but I would love to have you on my YouTube channel. There you go. This is open in the join. air yeah. invitation. You? Look at that. Yeah, happy to join. That'd be awesome. You don't, you don't, okay, so that's you another You don't want plug. a bunch of tech bros like me to f decide in the future. Come on, we need to get the, <laughs> the, the the good feminine voices out there to steer us right. I'm not, I don't make any decisions in my family. I just <laughs> I listen to the real boss. So with that, for go to go I am West Shields and for Mapo, our wonderful guest, saying happy prompting, everybody. Happy prompting, everybody. And now, Mapo, you do it too. <laughs> Happy prompting. <laughs> Amazing. As always, you can check out the show notes and links at howtotalkto.ai. That's all for this week's episode. Happy prompting, everyone.